The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. <laughs> He's frozen for me. Are you? I'm, I'm not frozen wow. on my end. Oh, there he is. Uh, now that it's just us, I can just let my grey hairs hang out. Tēnā koutou katoa. This is Gone by Lunchtime. It is the evening of Wednesday, the 25th of August, coming in just after 9pm, and Ben and Annabelle and I have just recently completed our conquest of yet another medium when we undertook an Instagram Live, if that's what it's called. Um, and I think we, again, kind of managed to smash through the form and create something entirely new, Annabelle, Ben. I think it's fair to say we're New Zealand's leading Instagram livers now. Mm. Just just when the other media organisations think that they know the rules, we know, know the... I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. You're, you've just... Oh, God, I'm spent. I'm spent. I beat too, too fast. You're a disruptor, Ben. You've always been a disruptor, and you continue to disrupt. Yeah, now, now I can't do anything without the, the adrenaline thrill of live, you know? You were amazing, Ben. Uh, oh, look, we were all amazing. We revolutionised the form once more. Yeah. Can you tell me about the other amazing thing that happened to you today, Ben? You returned a negative test for the coronavirus. I did. COVID-19, not here, buddy. Mm-hmm. Um so my, my COVID stats right now are one, one Pfizer jab um, mm-hmm. because I am a, a delicate baby with asthma who yeah. needs to be protected at all costs. Um, and then I was booked While in... While smoking most, a packet of cigarettes every day? Uh, well, actually, today is five weeks smoke-free. Woohoo, couple. Oh, that's very good. Well done, you. So, you know... Um, Still bald though. That's that's another risk factor. <laughs> Matter of time. Um, the yeah. So um, my second vaccination was uh, kicked to touch by the Ministry of Health because yes. um, they they wanted to test people for the coronavirus, um, and so that has been that's been put on hold. I, I think that might be late September for me. So I've been forced to revise my projection for when I think that we should open the borders and learn to live with the virus to sort of mid-October sometime. Yes. I had my first um, vaccination um, on Elliott Street and it was awesome, like super well organised, waited five minutes and I was in the chair. They like sort of meet you outside and bring you in 
And just as I was getting ready to leave, it was like that moment on Alien 2 yeah. when they realised they're inside the body of the alien. <laughs> I looked up and I was like, holy shit, I'm under the Crown Plaza. Oh, my God. You were, you were probably led in through what you thought was like an underground alleyway but was actually like the exercise area from the Crown Plaza. You know? And then, listeners, she looked up and from the ceiling was dripping what at first she thought was condensation <laughs> exactly I was like oh that's so cool they're all wearing masks and stuff and then I was like <laughs> hey guys <laughs> have, you, have, you been keep, have you been keeping up with that I, I've got to admit that like there's so much minutiae and detail I haven't really been able to sort of you know, I can't, I can't sort of rotate three dimensional objects in my head you know, I don't have that kind of brain but um you know, when they've been sort of thinking about the kind of spatial planning of the Crown Plaza and the testing mm. and the mm. walkway. And Joe Moy has been doing some great work on this for Newsroom. Mm. Mm. Um, but, you know, one of the questions was, well, you know, didn't you think it was a bit weird having a, a walkway <laughs> that is basically made the same as, you know, the Auckland sewer pipes where, you know, the barrier only goes halfway up so that if there's overflow, <laughs> you know, the air just goes into the other into the other um uh what, canopy or whatever yeah um and we're <laughs> and and i think um bloomfield said something like oh you know but we're not worried because the space is very well ventilated it's like yes that's because there's airflow between the public <laughs> and the infected people <laughs> like that's, this is where you don't want indoor outdoor flow <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, um, though, I mean, this is New Zealand, right? Like, we're not one of those countries where you have to put in really tough barbed wire barriers between groups of people in queuing situations. And it's simply a case of a sheet of perspex and saying to the coronavirus, just be respectful, you know? Just be respectful <laughs> of other people around you and, and they'll the be boundaries. respectful back. Yeah. Hmm. Totally. <laughs> So you know, there's um, you know these wrangles about MIQ capacity, about refreshing and getting the bots, and you know I think uh, MB you know got into trouble about you know making jokes at the expense of people who were you know stuck outside the border. There's a lot of angst yeah. about whether people will ever be able to return home. Um, this guy I've known for many many years, um, a real libertarian, you know, sort of. Um, you know, kind of John Galt kind of thing. Um, he's in the expat pages now and he's come up with, he's going to sail to New Zealand. <laughs> like basically sort of reverse seasteading, like instead of going out and creating an island community free from like the laws of governments and things, he's, he's going to yeah. sail, <laughs> sail through the bureaucracy <laughs> ashore from the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, so, you know, the thing is, even even though this pandemic has been terrible for everybody, like this, this is this is what he has been waiting his whole life to do, right? <laughs> like Christian, like, Christian Fletcher vibes, just like yeah, like Atlas shipped, just like Fletcher Christian. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I just think you know some of some of us, a select few, the pandemic is letting us live our best lives. Vibes. And nice. that would make a way better movie than whatever those Americans were going to do about Christchurch. Ah, uh, yes. Well, good. <laughs> like, f fly away home, but with libertarians. <laughs> good. Well, he's welcome on the podcast when he arrives. 
I wanted to say first, actually, Ben, before I get into this, that um, I see you were today soliciting for romance on Twitter.com on the basis of your negative COVID test. Should Look, people get in touch directly with you? And do you? what was it that meant you need to get a COVID test? Because even if it's not COVID, that might mean that you're not, notwithstanding the lockdown level four rules, really an attractive proposition. Well, we, we, we covered this in the, um, in the Instagram Live, so about six people listening to this right now will have already heard this. But, uh, <laughs> Hi, all my cousins. <laughs> um, on either Friday or Saturday, I woke up and I had... Um, I've been drinking a lot of ginger wine, um, you know, for its medicinal properties and to fortify yep. myself against the virus. I've also been getting really getting into the sort of um, processed sliced cheese, which you know, I'm a little intolerant of, of dairy. But, you know, it's mm. lockdown, right? What, what have mm. we got to do except sort of comfort eat and graze? Like, like processed slices? like in Processed the... slices, yeah. Okay. The ones that All say right. chives, but it's really yeah. just sort of green food colouring sort of interrupting the yellow food colouring. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... I woke up on Saturday and I had this, my lips and underneath my nose like really swollen. And so the first thing I did obviously was Google facial swelling plus COVID. And the, you know, the, what came back was the result that, you know, <laughs> facial swelling was an extremely rare symptom of COVID when your yeah. immune system had been entirely overwhelmed and was on the point of collapse and you were about to die. Um, so obviously I, I needed to go get a test. Um, that, that has, um, that's now subsided. Uh, I'm no longer facially deformed. I just have my normal full lips. Um, and so, you know, if, and I mean, the the other thing is that when, when now, what is it? Is it the eighth day today, isn't it? Yes. Eighth day, which is, that's that's when lockdown horniness, like, basically peaks around the nation. Oh, yes, um, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that data visualisation, but... Uh, um, yeah, well, I, th I think, um, well, Chris Hipkins was talking about it with, you know, sort of uh, spreading your lips. Spreading your lips, yes, yes. Um, ba basically, every, everyone is on display, you know, yep. everyone, everyone's... Everyone's masked up, mostly so that, you know, it doesn't oh, and of distract course, from... Distract just, from the mating butts that they're waggling around and, you know... Jacinda like um, Ardern held up that, that map, didn't she, which showed sort of the levels of the, haughtiness the around heat, the country. The on-heat map, yes. Yeah. The, um, and so, yeah, so look, I'm, I'm not immune. I mean, I'm, I'm a human being who's, mm. you know, been, been in, infected by the miasma just like everybody else. You know, but not by the COVID. Not by the COVID. And no. so I think um, I think it's it's just. I mean, this is not a this is not a paid promotion. I'm, I'm, message, I'm healthy and I'm and I'm free five minutes after the end of lockdown. What we're what we're trying to say, ladies and gentlemen, is that you need to make Ben Thomas your location of interest. <laughs> There's been some debate in the last couple of days as the case numbers have got up to 210. Scotty Morrison's been chatting away. A few pundits have been getting involved about whether or not the uh, elimination strategy, as it's been called, is viable in the short, medium, long term. Um, none of us is an epidemiologist. None of us is a public health expert. All of us... Uh, I've, se I've sent over 15,000 tweets well, since the beginning of the pandemic, so <laughs> I feel like I'm relatively close. <laughs> um, Annabelle, mm -hmm. 
Do you think that there is um, there is some strain on that existing approach, that existing strategy? I think it's really the only strategy that's available to us. I think it's unconscionable to be considering anything other than an elimination strategy at the moment. Mm. Um, I mean, for a start, we don't have the ICU beds available to be able to cope with just letting... Delta roam through the community and I think that even if we did get our vaccination rates up high enough um, we're still going to have to go into lockdowns from from time to time. I mean the stats that came through tonight show that half of those infected with Delta at the moment are um, teenagers and tamariki and we've only just started vaccinating um, 12 to 18 year olds we're seeing kids dying in Fiji in, um, in Australia so how we could um, consider anything other than elimination would be to really fail um, a younger generation of New Zealanders let alone those who are already immune con uh, compromised or in the older age bracket so I think, you know, Scott Morrison's um, criticism of Jacinda is actually less about Jacinda and more about the pressure he's under in Australia That's from right. other politicians. And, and there's also, it's also interesting the way that some of the state premiers have responded to that insofar as they're absolutely not in, <coughs> on the same page as him. Well, Queensland is not We've enough. got to... Well, neither is Western Australia. You know, they're not about to start living with it. Thanks, Scotty. Um, the point you make about the, the uh, best intensive thing about the care Scott is Morrison a really thing. good one. Um, sorry, Ben. Um, I, I want to go back to you there, no, but I just want to go. mention um, on, on intensive care and about there's a terrific piece on the spin-off, which I would urge people to read amid the zillions of pieces out there by Alex Kazemi, who was the head of um, intensive care at Middlemore for some time and who uh, has written a terrifically nuanced piece uh, and beautifully written too about uh, pressures on uh, ICUs and how it's not just about beds but about the staffing of those beds and all sorts of wider issues around equity. It's a fantastic Absolutely. piece. Fantastic piece. Absolutely. But, and it's not just about people with COVID either. It's about people suffering all sorts of other kinds of illnesses who won't get the medical care they need if, um, if all of our doctors and nurses and health workers are getting sick and all of our hospital beds are taken up by people with COVID or long COVID. So when you hear Judith Collins on News Hub saying, you know, we need to learn to live with COVID, well, no, we will, if we don't follow or pursue elimination, we'll be learning how to die with COVID. Forgive me, Ben, I interrupted you talking about Scott Morrison. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have to learn to live with COVID, right? Because it's not going to be eliminated around the world. As, as I think we keep saying, you know, it's, we're not going to turn into the sort of lost Atlantis of the South Pacific. Um, but there's no reason to start living with it now if, if we have the option of stamping it out. I mean, New South Wales has had a much longer, more disruptive lockdown than we will end up having uh, if we can knock it on the head in the next four four weeks, right? Um, 
which, you know, according to physics, we should be able to do. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. There, you know, Scott Morrison, I think he's always had this sort of slightly ideological kind of approach. Um, they almost sort of fell into elimination um, through the efforts of their state premiers rather than, mm. you know, the federal government over there. Um, but my favourite part of it, you know, is that, you know, Scott Morrison said, you know, New Zealand, you know, they can't just, like, live in a cave forever. They've got to get out into the real world. And you're like, oh, you know, if, if Boris Johnson said that, he'd be making a sort of allusion to, you know, uh, Plato's cave and, you know, saying New Zealand's got to get real. It can't just look at the flickering images on the wall. You know, it needs to adjust to reality. But he was actually talking about 2013 animated movie The Croods. <laughs> <laughs> which he which he later referenced. <laughs> it's like it's like that movie, The Croods. <laughs> you can't just live in a cave. It's just like which is just like really, you know, it's it's an almost too sort of perfect metaphor of just like the absolute boneheadedness of sort of conservative Australian politics at times. The. Of course, it's worth remembering that even though you say that they fell into elimination in Australia, and I think there's a lot of truth in that, some of the restrictions they've had at the national border have been stricter than New Zealand's. For example, you couldn't even leave the country as an Australian. Mm. <laughs> you know, you need to get special permission to leave, which we've we've not had here, to my knowledge. Um, one of the and things you don't I think hear, that's... you don't hear any of the rest of the world complaining about that, eh? Oh. You guys just stay in Australia, kapai. Yeah, and also, we don't have any snakes. The, the, the thing I thought was interesting, I did think it was really quite noticeable on Q&A on Sunday when Chris Hipkins, the Minister for the COVID Response, did start saying that there were questions around whether or not the elimination strategy could work medium-long term. And I don't think it's so much that he was saying anything that hadn't already been explored, particularly in that, what was it called, the Reconnecting with the World Summit, and which which was sort of very interesting and not as many people were paying attention to it as they are sort of now when <laughs> everyone's at home and reading doom scrolling about COVID. Um, but in a way, I think it's a question of emphasis because there's been all this kind of quite strained debate and Bernard Hickey's been getting into it and they've been getting kind of lambasted by a lot of people on Twitter. But actually, I think it's really just a question of emphasis. I don't think anyone sensible or plausible is saying at the moment, let's open up in the next week or month or two months or three months, nor do I think anyone is saying we will continue to the end of our lives with the current settings. It's more, Jacinda Ardern, as she put it this week, was that, yes, we're, no one is having any conversations that are different to elimination right now, because that is clearly the strategy to try and defeat what we face. But... It may be, she said, next year we will listen to experts and see what they have to say. Because, of course, in the dream scenario, the vaccine gets better. <laughs> you know, if you can get yep. a vaccine that works where it were nasally applied to prevent it or, or a vaccine that's refined to be more effective against the Delta. The worst, worst scenario is the vaccine gets overtaken by evolutions of the virus and then we're screwed again, in which case you kind of want to revert back to more extreme settings. But, I mean, I think, Annabelle, when you look particularly <coughs> at the fact that 
a massive proportion. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary number in the in the current outbreak. We've got two hundred and ten people. One hundred and forty five of those people are Pacific peoples. Pacific people who are the best in the country at diligently getting tested, better than anyone, but also are not vaccinated at anywhere near the same rate as, as others in the country. And that's a real shortcoming of our system. And if we were to move anywhere anywhere towards opening up, then that would be the community that would be most at risk. And that's not that's just not morally acceptable, is it? Absolutely not. And I, th- I think that the issue that we'll face is that Basically, all countries will, you know, need to pursue elimination strategies as well um, for us to be able to open up again. Otherwise, we just um, nullify our own vaccine um, programs because if we just let it run rampant, we're going to get more and more variations. We won't be worrying about Delta. We'll be at the end of the the alphabet. So this is where, you know, big countries like the US, the UK, Brazil have um, really failed us, but, you know, as citizens of the world. But it's also really concerning to see that we're lagging behind countries like Chile and Colombia when it comes to our vaccination rates. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the sad reality is that because we have been good at eliminating, there hasn't been the same sense of urgency with the rollout and that's coming home to roost now. Yeah, and and because even before the vaccine uh, rollout had started, um, you know, there was a minority and it was, was, wasn't really represented in public of people who thought, well, actually the first people who should be vaccinated are young people because they're the ones who move around and spread it. They're the ones who go mm. to Bar 101. They're the ones mm. who go to Sweatshop Kitchen. Um, if I had been the first person to get the virus no one would have it right now, you know? Like, my, 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 my phone screen would have, like, the highest viral load recorded in, you know, the global pandemic. But, like, not another fucking human being would have contracted the disease, right? Because I'm an old man, but... You know, when you get these young people who move around a lot, you know, and they go to school, right? You know, very few people go to a workplace Mm. as big as a school. Um, And they take the bus, right, because they don't have cars. And, 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 but also South Auckland, you know, there was a, there was a, uh, there wasn't, I know that there was an idea floated early that South Auckland actually gets priority vaccinations because that's where all the outbreaks are. Mm. Now, this one, the outbreak may not have happened there. It probably happened at the Crown Plaza, but, you know, all, all, all roads lead to, you know. Mm, and yeah. that's still, that's still the community that's most at risk from Jet Park, from the airport, from, People working essential jobs, um, yep. and it does, and and this is what brings it into sharp relief. You know, the government says, "Oh, well, you know, there was no real, well, you know, we wouldn't want to push ahead of other countries." You know, which is the the strangest sort of explanation because it's not like. You know, if, if 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 supposedly vaccine priority has been given to countries where it's you know causing more havoc than New Zealand, then I don't know why India hasn't gotten a higher <laughs> percentage of vaccinations. You know, that's not actually that's not a real explanation, right? That's something to sort of salve the consciences of people who aren't vaccinating us fast enough. 
Um, but but this is where, you know, questions that were raised, you know, for weeks, for months before this outbreak about the speed of the vaccination or were routinely brushed off by the government and its defenders, um, you know, really comes home to roost because now the people who are unvaccinated are the young people who are predominantly in South Auckland and are predominantly Māori and Pacifica. The only silver lining, if there is one, in this um, current outbreak is that it's perhaps made people... Um, more proactive about seeking out how they can get vaccinated rather than waiting for for the invitation to go and do it. And I think, you know, another part of the failing with our vaccination programme is that it hasn't been nuanced enough. You know, it's all good and well to have max va- uh, vaccination, mass va- vaccination events, but when we did our our, our poll of Māori, um, one of the things that came through strongly is that people who were vaccine hesitant might be persuaded if they went to their local GP for another um, illness or condition and had a conversation with them there. And there's a good article on RNZ about um, about GPs and their frustration in terms of um um, getting the ability to provide vaccines, they're really willing and able, but yep. they say that it's been caught up in red tape and that's a real missed opportunity to get into some of those hard-to-reach areas and hard-to-reach communities and vaccine-hesitant communities. Yeah, absolutely. I think we touched about touched on this a bit last week, but <clears throat> some of the points that Shane and Essie has been making about GPs and about their relationships with their um, with, with the people who come to their practices um, and the slowness on that. And there are, there are 12 pharmacies in Auckland, it was real today or something, that are offer vaccines. It feels it feels a bit uh, inadequate, inadequate really. I was thinking when you are saying that, that maybe what we should have done is faked an outbreak just to try and get the vaccine kick-started a bit. I don't, I'm pretty sure this one is real. But maybe, maybe, this is, no, maybe this is no, maybe this is it. Yeah, I don't think we should Billy, say that because then, we'll, then if you <laughs> say that, then, <laughs> yeah. then this will be clipped by yeah, a yeah, conspiracy right. theorist. <laughs> so that's why I decided not to say that. Um, uh, on the accountability, opposition, etc., side of things, we've had Parliament suspended this week. And instead, uh, we've had uh, this sort of existing suite of select committees juggled around a bit, operating by Zoom, and uh, officials and ministers brought before them. But we haven't had yet anything, uh, we haven't had the Epidemic Response Committee, which of course we remember uh, kicked in after the outbreak the first time round with Simon Bridges chairing it. Better than better than most people remember. I'm not saying he got a lot of that right, and I know you guys are still very angry with him for not sending you a copy of his book. But I remember going back to sit, look at some of those when I was looking at one year on, and he was running a pretty good, uh, you know, checking mechanism on that committee. And it is a bit different, I think. I don't know if you guys agree to the existing select committees where there was some good stuff from what I saw today and yesterday, but they're still chaired by Labour MPs who, uh, you know, are saying stick to scope, to which my response is the scope is really whatever the people ask questions want the scope to be. Don't be bloody ridiculous. Um, I don't don't need to hear standing orders. Thank you very much. Um, But, uh, yeah, there's pressure now. 
because it's what happens now, National have started a petition to get the Epidemic Response Committee back together. Ben? Yeah, I, I don't like the chances of, you know, getting a mess groundswell of public support for the constitution of a parliamentary committee. It's not... You don't feel action stations coming on? It's just, I mean, it's, it's just not particularly sexy. Um, what do we want? Especially fund-founded fun select committee to provide accountability for government actions. Yeah, and uh, but, um, you know, like you were saying... All of these select committees, uh, I think with the exception of environment, which doesn't really matter in this context, um, is is chaired by a, a Labour member. Um, and the people who are chairing select committees tend to be uh, those promising MPs and those ambitious MPs who are just sort of below ministerial status. So they're looking to curry favour um, and earn friends in Cabinet and catch the Prime Minister's eye. With their adept handling of issues, they are not going to be holding Ashley Bloomfield or Grant Robertson to account. <laughs> They're not going to be holding their feet to the fire. Uh, they are going to be solving problems, political problems for the government. Um, so, you know, I think in these extraordinary times, you know, the, the reason that the Epidemic Response Committee was necessary was because without Parliament, you know, you essentially have no checks on, on the executive, the executive, because they, you know, especially with the extraordinary powers that they get during this pandemic to literally, you know, put the entire country under house arrest. Um, you know, that needs some level of scrutiny that is greater than a bunch of, you know, however intelligent or well-meaning party hacks, um, you know, chairing committees of business as usual. I don't think it's the end of democracy as we know it, but the concern that I have about that decision is that it kind of plays into the hands of the disinformation crowd who are saying that, you know, COVID is part of a conspiracy for, you know, total government control and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I, I struggle to understand why they didn't reinstate it and it just, you know, creates a whole lot of unhelpful... Um, discourse about what's going on and I mean really it, it can only add value why wouldn't you especially if you can do it via Zoom it, it really does I seem to be one of those situations where the government has just decided it's con it's more convenient for them not to in a political mm. sense and they, they don't need to because they have you know 60, 60 something votes 67 votes yeah, and I mean, I think I think Hipkins, Chris Hipkins, is who's also the leader of the House, has talked about um, trying to find a way to reconvene Parliament virtually in some form uh, next week, and that's good. That's um, good, and a lot of countries have managed to do that. For my money, the Epidemic Response Committee is is a better solution because you can bring in mm. experts and officials and whoever, and you don't have the kind of absurd pantomime of 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 question time, mm. which which I think is a is a, is, a, is a lot more heat than light on the whole and the ability to watch people who aren't being theatrical uh, simply ask, run a line of questions, which, by the way, you don't get in the 1pms and, by the way, is one of the reasons that some of the questions that are asked annoy people watching at home is because you don't get to do the normal interrogation of asking, you know, five or six questions in a row because it's you ask you one question and you need to get your grab of audio or whatever and then they sort of turn the searchlight across to the other side of the room. Anyway, um, 
enough of that. Let's wind this up because uh, we've got things to do. Let's just have a word before we go about Michael Cullen, who, of course, was Deputy Prime Minister to Helen Clark for many years, was Finance Minister, among other things, set up the New Zealand Super Fund and died last week at the age of 76. Um, Annabelle, what, what are your reflections on Michael Cullen and his contribution? Um, I didn't know him very well. My mum worked with him. Um, I met him a couple of times through work and he, he always um, struck me as being a very honourable, pleasant um, man. I've seen all over Facebook a lot of um, Māori lawyers and, and um, iwi people, negotiators, um, who spent a lot of time with him and um, are really saddened by his passing and the massive contribution he made. I do think that, um, I don't know if you guys remember back in the early 2000s when Mark Burton was the um, Minister for Treaty Settlements and Labour passed the legislation putting a deadline on historical claims and basically the, the whole... Um, um, the whole treaty settlement process ground to a complete halt until um, Michael stepped in and he, you know, achieved a lot. And I know that there's a lot of iwi out there who hold him in the highest regard. So very sad to hear of his passing. Mm. One of the, he was sort of seemed to be a mentor for a lot of people. One of those was uh, Kiritapu Allen, who, mm. uh, who, who of course has emerged as a massive talent. And I was thinking we should get her on the on the pod sometime soon. If, so if you're listening, Kitty, we'll we'll give you a ring and um, get you to contribute. Ben, well, your reflections? Yeah, well, I, I didn't know Cullen at all. I met you know I met him a few times when I was a journalist um, covering politics and finance. Um, a couple of times, I think you know when he was coming in to confer with Finlayson, he was very. Um, yeah, he was obviously my boss, Chris Finlayson's um, predecessor as Treaty Negotiations Minister and as Attorney General. Mm. Um, he's very constructive um, in the treaty space, also the foreshore and seabed, which I think um, he personally has identified as, uh, I think he said, one of the greatest challenges, you know, probably one of the greatest regrets you'd probably assume. Um and you know he he played he played a he played a constructive part in um, in the repeal of, of that legislation in terms of off, offering his advice. Um, he also after retiring, you know, he he was a lot of um, well a few, a few politicians. Doug Graham was another one. Um, you know, they really take the treaty uh, settlement sort of part of their careers. You know, that has one of the greatest effects on them. So Cullen, you know, obviously has this incredible legacy and KiwiSaver, um, which is, you know, how if anyone is able to buy houses without their parental help right now, it's because of KiwiSaver. Um, working for families was him. Kiwi Bank probably, you know, against his wishes, you know, thanks to the alliance. But uh, the super fund, which I don't know, what's that up to about six, eighty billion dollars now or something? Um, but but yeah, he's, I think he said the the thing that had the most sort of profound effect on him was his work in treaty uh, settlements. And after he retired, he um, 
as a few people do, he went over to the Iwi side, he helped Tuwharatoa as their negotiator, um, and he sat on the um, finance committee for my friends uh, Tuhoi down in, um, in the Uruweras. And those two Iwi um, put out a joint statement um, about him, uh, sort of commemorating him after his death, which is, is pretty rare because they, they, they're both sort of two groups who kind of tend to go it alone a bit. Um, which I think is a mark of the sort of esteem that he was held in. Well, thank you both. Um, it's very nice to see you. No one else can see you guys, but I, I can see you both. So that's a, a special, it's like an Instagram live for me, the whole thing. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks very much, Tete here for recording us and uh, making this work and being very patient up at night with us. Thank you to uh, Spinoff members, for everything that you do and uh, thanks listeners lots of love Nahoramai Kia ora Kia ora e te iwi Te Aihe Butler here Podcast Manager at The Spinoff If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.